I am perhaps going to start out today with the most controversial thing I've ever talked about. Pulp or no pulp? Okay, we're going to get an official vote here. By show of hands, who does not like pulp and their orange juice? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven and a half, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Depends. Okay, fourteen and a half to fifteen and a half. By show of hands, who does like pulp and their orange juice? One, two, three, four, five, six and a half, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 17, 18, 18 and a half. Okay. Obviously, this is a polarizing issue. I have met people that would rather die of dehydration than drink orange juice with pulp in it. I, myself, I'm kind of like Joe. I'm a little in the middle. I've gone back and forth on it. Bruce, I think Joe, Bruce, and I are in the same camp. We're not strongly opinionated about, about pulp, although here are some of my thoughts on the issue. <laughs> so I, I think I like pulp and orange juice sometimes. And then a slimy little piece of pulp just hits my throat in the wrong way and makes me shiver. <laughs> and it makes me never want to drink pulp in my orange juice ever again. And, but that has never crossed my mind when I'm bring, drinking orange juice without pulp in it. And it also seems like I'm paying the orange juice company to do less work, to be lazy. You know, like, they're, they're giving me less juice and they're giving me the leftovers from the process. So that doesn't seem like a bargain. Another thing that bothers me about pulp is that I don't like seeing things floating around in my drinks. You know, I don't like it seeing like the sediment on the bottom. It kind of grosses me out because it reminds me of all the other bad experiences I've had with bugs, hair, and other gross things in my drink. You know, it just like it brings back these vivid images and makes me want to vomit in my mouth. <laughs> now there are arguments on the positive side of pulp. I'm not here. I'm not just a one-issue kind of guy. <laughs> I, I can see both sides. Now, I, I get that it adds maybe nutritional value. You know, the, the pulp adds the fiber and maybe some of the nutrients that you don't get in the juice. But I'm not sure that if I was going for healthy, that the sugar-added orange juice I'd buy at a store is really the right method anyway. But if we're talking like the fresh-squeezed orange juice, you know, like you might buy at GFS, then there might be an argument there. Some, some people think that it adds some character. or, or I don't really know why. But, so here's my question. Since we have a majority of people in this room that like pulp, my question is, why do you like pulp in orange juice? This is not a rhetorical question. This is legitimately a question. Why do you like pulp in your orange juice? It's an extra bonus. <laughs> right. More natural. More natural. Fiber, yeah, for sure. Definitely. No. There you go. I do sometimes, Nails. But anybody else have any good reasons for pulp? Not boring. Not as boring. I don't know. I mean, maybe just, I don't know, 
true. Yeah, we're not wasting pulp. That's a good point. You know, like we're using it for something. It has value. We're not wasting the pulp. <laughs> now, okay, so I promise we're not wasting time this morning talking about orange juice pulp when we're supposed to be debating the, you know, the character of God or something. You know, I don't know. We're not wasting, we're not wasting our time here. It didn't go down the orange juice rabbit hole for nothing. It actually has a lot to do with our message today because it's going to help us understand an expression used in the Bible that we don't really hear often in English. And knowing about orange juice and pulp will help us understand what's being said here. So let's go ahead and take a look at that passage now. Zephaniah chapter 1. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, Zephaniah was a prophet during the time of King Josiah. Now every day I get to plug my own name in a sermon. So I'm going to take the opportunity. So Josiah was the king at the time. And Zephaniah was a prophet. And as with many prophets, he was sent to tell the Israelites how bad of a job they were doing at following God. And Zephaniah was sent because the rich and the powerful in Judah were resting in their riches. They, they were relying on their wealth and the power and security that it brings. And in the midst of this, the effect of their, their security and their possessions, their zeal for God, their zeal for the Lord, dwindled. And leading up to this point, there had been a lot of really bad kings in Judah's history. Some of the most wicked were right before Josiah. And these evil kings on the throne brought in things like extortion and the perversion of justice and idol worship. And there was just a general lack of love and respect for God during this time in Judah. But if you know a thing or two about the kings of Judah, then you'll know that Josiah was actually a good king. And his reign was marked by kind of the spiritual revival. Spirituality kind of thrived during the case of Josiah. So why is Zephaniah bringing this message? Well, some people think, which is why they think this, that maybe Zephaniah's prophecy came right at the beginning of Josiah's reign. And some people even give it as much credit as saying that it was Zephaniah's prophecy, his words, that changed Josiah and Judah and made him take the faith seriously and gave him this fervent heart for God. So there's a little bit of Bible trivia for you this morning. But knowing that Zephaniah is, is warning the people of Judah is really important to our discussion. And Zephaniah presents a very compelling message because obviously the reign of, of Josiah changed. So one such message that might have inspired the comfortable to rethink their spiritual life are found found in verses 10 through 13. So let's go ahead and read that, chapter 1. So on that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, this is talking about the city of Jerusalem, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men that are settled on their lees. Who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become a plunder and their house desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them. They will plant vineyards but not drink their wine. So we can see that Sephaniah is giving this warning to a certain group of people, those who are settled on their lees, 
whatever that means. And those who say in their hearts that the Lord will not do good or evil. So in order to understand who Zephaniah is talking to, we need to understand actually what he's saying. And when I read this verse the first time, I was like, what in the world does it mean to be settled on your lees? <laughs> what does that even mean, to be settled on their lees? Now, your translation might have already helped you understand what's actually being said here. So in Hebrew, the translation over to English is actually very, very close. It, word for word, settled on their lees. But obviously, translators who are looking at the Hebrew here, and they're like, I know for a fact none of the people in my church are going to have any idea what that means. So I'm going to help them out here and translate it a little bit differently. So it might say something like stagnant in spirit, who are complacent, who are like wine left on dregs, or the men who are settled in complacency. So the reason why the orange juice conversation was so important to helping us understand our passage today is that the lees of wine are the pulp, like orange and orange juice, right? So when you make wine, you smash grapes, right? And out comes the juice, and then you're left with all the other bits. You're left with the twigs and the grape skins and all the fiber. And those are called the leaves. They are the, the leftovers from the winemaking process. And so when you're making wine and, and, you, and you squeeze all the juice out and you put it in a bottle, you just let it sit there, right? And it separates the top from the bottom. You get the good stuff on the top and then the leaves settle to the bottom, which is the pulp. It's, it's the grape skin and the fiber. And the winemaking process is what God is using to compare the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm going to search out the people who are fine with the leftovers, who are fine with the stuff that has settled to the bottom, the people who are settled on their leaves, the, the people who are, in other words, complacent, who are stagnant in spirit, who aren't moving anymore, the people who are just okay with okay. The people who have sat around for too long and become comfortable. These are the people who are okay with just the pulp and the orange juice, right? And now, I know some of us like pulp and orange juice, but I doubt any of us would really enjoy just eating straight up orange juice pulp, right? Okay, by, raise, by show of hands, who would actually like to just eat orange juice pulp by itself? Would anybody, like, maybe mildly enjoy that? Hmm. Rick, Elaine? I'm going to schedule a meeting with you guys this week, if that's okay. We just need to have a counseling session. All joking aside, I mean, it tastes like oranges, so I guess it wouldn't be terrible, but it wouldn't be great either. All joking aside, God is saying that it is possible for us to get to a place spiritually where we are satisfied with the lesser things of the faith. When we ignore the really good parts of the faith because they take too much effort or we're just complacent or we don't care anymore. And I think that along these lines, it goes with being comfortable with our routines and our traditions where we're just comfortable showing at the same time for church every Sunday or whatever and we just go through the motions and we don't have the zeal the excitement, the passion that should accompany those things. The, the, the people who aren't putting the worth into the worship, who, who don't really feel it in their heart. And so let's take a look at the next phrase a little bit here, because it's also a little bit tricky. 
And then once we kind of understand both, we'll put the, the pieces together here. The phrase we're going to be looking at is, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. So what does that mean? Well, in this particular case, we have a couple of verses to help us out. The first being in Isaiah 41. So God is talking to the Israelites, and he is, he is asking them to prove their idols. And he says, this is what God says to the idols of Israel. He says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. So this is his test to the idols. And for the former events, declare what they were, that they may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come forward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that, way, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. The test that God proposes to the idols of Israel is to simply do something. Just do something to prove to us that you're real, whether it be a good or an evil thing. Just do something. And the idols, guess what? Didn't do anything. So they aren't truly gods. They aren't truly alive. It's proof that they are not real. It's proof that they are not real. To confirm this interpretation, Jeremiah 10.5 says this. God says about the idols, don't fear them. Don't be afraid of these false gods because they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. They can't do anything whatsoever. So when we see God applying this line of thinking to the people of Judah, we realize that God is saying his people thinks, think he is not real. They are at a point where they think he does not intervene in the world, where he doesn't do anything. He doesn't care. The people who, thinks, who think that he cannot act in the world. So apparently, the people of Judah stopped thinking that God was the living God who partakes in the affairs of this world through his divine providence. And so that taking this knowledge and taking it back to Zephaniah, when we, can, when we put these two phrases together, those who are stagnant in spirit or, or settled on their lees, and those who say that the, word, the Lord does not do good or evil, we see that Zephaniah is warning the people of Judah who have become wealthy, who rely on their own power, who only care for their possessions, who have become comfortable and complacent, and who think that God does not have the power to work in the world. And Zephaniah is warning these people that God is going to search them out. Now that should scare you. (laughs) That the creator of the universe is coming to look for you because he does not think you're doing what you should be doing. That should make you sit up straight and pay attention. He's going to search you out even in the darkest places. He's going to search you out the lamp. There's no night dark enough, no cave deep enough that God will not find you. And let me tell you, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well for the people who are complacent and disinterested in God. And the worst part is, I think this description fits perfectly with many modern-day Christians, in America at least, from my observations 
Many Americans live in a life, live a life of comparative luxury. I, I mean, we really do to the rest of the world and to the rest of history. And the luxury that we have often can make us feel confident in what we have. And that wealth brings with it the comforts of life. And many cares and troubles that many people deal with in the world on a daily basis just don't ever enter into our minds. And we can sit here going through our days worshiping, but without truly being involved in our hearts because we've been settled or comfortable or complacent. And we can say that we believe in God without actually believing that he does anything. And we can pray without the belief that God is actually listening or that he cares to hear us. I think that Zephaniah could have been talking to us just as easily as to the Jews of his day. Does this half-hearted faith that Zephaniah is talking about here remind you of any other group in the Bible? Does it remind you of any other church maybe in the New Testament that's kind of lukewarm? The church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, this is what Jesus says. He's, he's giving warnings to the churches. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful, and the true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, Neither hot nor cold. So that means you're not like on fire for me. You're not passionate. But you're also not saying that you're not a part of me either. You're not like on the outside. You're just like right here in the middle. You want to be a part of everything. You want to say that you're a part of me. But you're not, you're not actually involved. Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, here are the reasons why they're lukewarm. I am rich, and I've become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That sounds like some Americans I know. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. So Jesus gives some advice to those people. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves. And the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. To whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, to fix what's going on in this church, he says, therefore, be zealous and repent. Be excited, be involved, and repent. Because... They lay out of wealth and comfort. They became arrogant. They were unable to see their true state. They thought they could see. They thought they were clothed. They thought they had these beautiful garments on. They thought they could see clearly. And as a side, historical side note here, the city was known for their eye salve, this ointment that was helped people see. So out of all the people in the world, they should have been able to see the best. But they didn't. Despite their wealth and their position... Jesus tells them that they are actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, even though they didn't think they were, because their hearts had become stagnant. They had become lukewarm, and they were settling for their watered-down faith, for the comfortable, 
They couldn't see that truth, so Jesus had to point it out to them. And these things are in Scripture so that we can be reminded of them too. So I think here are some good lessons, reminders for us this morning. Number one, our true wealth and righteousness and knowledge comes from Christ. Jesus asks them to purchase from him gold. Don't worry about the real gold or the physical gold. Purchase from me my gold and my clothing and my eye salve. And I don't think that Jesus is trying to be a merchant here pushing his product. He's not actually selling gold and clothing and eye salve. He's talking about the spiritual things. And I think the gold he wants us to have is our faith refined by the fire. Refined by the hardships that life brings and the, res- the reliance on him as our Lord. Through the testing of our beliefs and trusts, our faith, our gold is refined. And the white garments that Jesus speaks of are our righteousness, our holiness. He wants us to yearn for those things, for his sanctification, to be like him. And Jesus wants to open our eyes to the truth. And one truth mentioned in Revelation 3 is that sometimes we need to be disciplined. Sometimes we need to hear the truth and we need to repent. Usually we think that repentance was something reserved for the unsaved sinner. Unsaved sinner. We, we think that we're already covered in grace. We don't need to repent. But we fall into incorrect thinking. We fall into wrong actions and misdeeds all the time. That's who we are. We sometimes mess up. And we should not think ourselves above discipline and repentance. And Jesus loves us so much that he wants to straighten us out. He's not just doing this to punish us. He's doing it so that we can become more like him. So that we can fall into the line of the ideal image that God has for his children. Number two, we need to avoid complacency. Just like wine or orange juice, if you don't mix it up, if you don't stir it up, eventually everything's going to settle out, right? The pulp is going to fall to the bottom. The lees are going to be at the bottom. And we need to keep stirring up our spiritual life. We need to keep it moving with excitement and zeal so that we don't become stagnant, so that we don't settle. And I honestly think the easiest way to settle is by stop participating in the activities of the church, to just do your own thing, to be apart from everyone. It's really easy to get into our own routines. But you probably have seen people who have been Christians their entire lives and they're still passionate and on fire for God. And you ask yourselves, how do they do that after 40, 50, 60 years? It's because they they stay involved. And when you're away from the church and you're away from the goings on of, of the church family, you begin to get comfortable with a different routine. And it's hard to get back involved and it's hard to gain back that momentum that you lost. So one of the best ways I think that we can keep from becoming stagnant is to keep spending time with each other. Is to keep involved in each other's lives. To keep dreaming about ministry. And how we can impact the people around us with the gospel. With the good news. That's not going to let us get boring. That's not going to let us settle. That's going to keep us moving and excited. If we, if we start thinking, how can we affect our community? How can we use the resources that God has given us to do something that actually matters? Let's dream about it. Let's stir things up a little bit. Number three. We need to realize that God never stops moving, and we shouldn't either. Even when from our limited perspective, 
If, if it looks like God doesn't care, if he isn't doing anything in the world, if he isn't doing anything in our lives, we are just wrong. That's not the truth. The truth is that God is always involved. And just think about over the history of your life. Think back to the ways that you know that God intervened. If we have proof of it just in the short years that we've been alive, look at history. We have thousands of words here about what God has done. He is not uninvolved. He doesn't stop moving. He is still working things out. God is alive. He is real. And he moves in this world. So it's good for us to take our orange juice every once in a while and shake it up a little bit. I know that many of you are already involved here on a regular basis. And I know that you have dedicated your time in prayer and Bible reading. You have these spiritual things that you're doing in your lives. And that's great. And I know that you guys care about what's going on. But that does not stop us from needing reminders, right? Think about it like your gas gauge on your car. You have filled up your car a thousand times with gas. But you still need that little ding reminder when you're getting close to empty, right? Because sometimes you won't, you'll forget and then you're winding up on Stinky Creek Road, exit 147 in Tennessee in the middle of the night on your way to Georgia. That's what happens. I'm not even making that up. Stinky Creek Road is a real place, and I was there without gas. So it is possible for us to lose focus. It is possible for us to misplace our priorities because we're human. And so take this message today as a reminder to shake your life up a little bit. To shake up your spiritual life a little bit. To do something out of your comfort zone. Maybe sign up for something here at church you've never done before. Maybe join Sunday school or the Tuesday night home group, even if it's out of your comfort zone or if it's inconvenient for you. The more we stay involved, the more momentum we will gain. And the less less likely we are to be complacent, to be like the groups that we read about in Scripture today. We need to try our best so that on the day of judgment, we are seen as faithful servants, ones who loved God, never settled, and always relied on him instead of the things of the world. Let's pray. God, I pray that you stir us up, move in our lives and our hearts, and give us passion and zeal and show us the exciting things that you're doing here in our lives and in Rockford and around the world. Allow us to never be settled. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.